Let me try that again. Thank you. <laughs> well, this is going to be interesting this morning. <clears throat> I'm going to do my best impression of Kathleen Turner from Body Heat <clears throat> right now with this voice of mine. Um, rehearsal went okay, but I guess I blew it all out in rehearsal because <clears throat> halfway through the set, it was pretty much done. Got sick over the last few days, and so I'm going to just uh, do the best I can. So bear with me if you would. I've been thinking a lot over the last two weeks since Mike did the message last week. Thank you, Mike, wherever you landed up. Um, I had a couple of weeks to be thinking about what I wanted to talk about this morning. And as usual, the conversations that I had during the week really prompted me and directed me once again to talk a little bit more about the Father's love. And I know that I do this all the time, but there's a reason for this. A lot of times when I focus so heavily on the Father's love, um, I get criticized for going too far. And uh, I have realized over my life, and especially the last 20 years, that I am in no danger of going too far. And the only danger I have is not going far enough. The Father's love is so radical, it's so different, uh, alien even, than anything that we experience as human beings in this life, that it's really, maybe impossible for us to completely get our arms and minds and hearts and spirits around it. But the more that we can, the more that we can see it from different angles, the more we can begin to understand the quality and the kind of love that God has, is really, not has, but is, uh, the more that we can start to lose the fears and the associated manifestations that uh, are so limiting in our lives. And I had several conversations this week where people were talking to me about different aspects of this, and it all added up to the same thing. You know, we need not to just take a quantitative step forward. We need to take a full qualitative, a quantum leap in another direction. One of the analogies I like to use is that if you want to get out of, or when you get into orbit, into this planet's orbit, then the greatest, most state-of-the-art and the fastest plane, airplane in the world, will not take you there because a airplane needs air to get lift. And eventually, no matter how you're doing, you're going to run out of air and you're not going to get out of the orbit. So what you need to do is get out of that vehicle completely, as good as it may be, as perfect as it may be, and get into a different vehicle that has the escape velocity to take you where you want to go. And that's what kind of what we do with God's love. We take our human love and we push it to the nth degree and we think we're getting someplace and we are. But at some point you need to completely get out of that vehicle and get into a different vehicle that can take you to the next level. God's love is like that. It's so different. It's so difficult for us. And so looking at it from different angles and different directions, I think can help. We'll find out. I wanted to do something a little bit different. Marion and I and the boys drove up for the last three days uh, to Northern California. And uh, as we were driving up <clears throat> through the interminable San Joaquin Valley on Highway 99, um, listening to the stations that would come in and out of focus as you drive, you know, there was one that uh, played a song that I hadn't heard in years. And as I was listening to it, it just struck me with the force of kind of what we're talking about here. Another way, another window into God's love. So I want to do something a little different. I want to play that song for you. And I know this is a little non-standard. And as I play the song, you're probably wondering, where the heck is Dave going now? Give me a little rope here. and I promise I'll try to bring it home. <clears throat> but as you listen to this song, either just close your eyes and 
kind of let it wash over you. Or you can follow along with the lyric that's in the bulletin.
there are some songs that just put it all together. I don't know what it is. It's musicianship, I suppose, masterful arrangements, um, mixing, instrumentation. <clears throat> and for a moment, you know, it just creates this this wash of sound that just takes you into another place. That song does that for me since the first time I heard it 20 years ago, whatever it's been now. And you can't separate all that from the lyric. What makes a great lyric? I'll tell you what, aside from any of the technique, it's that it is an authentic expression of a human experience. And when you have that in writing and with the right voice singing it, you can't help but be drawn into that experience. Who among us has not been affected by unrequited love? Love that was not returned. Love that was not reciprocated. The frustration, the panic that you feel, the fear and the anguish of not being able to elicit in the other that which you feel so freely. How does that even work in human experience where actually two people can have the same feeling at the same time? It's amazing that it happens at all. But all of us have felt what the singer is talking about, what the writer expressed in the lyric. I can't make you love me if you don't. You can't make your heart feel something it won't. Here in the dark in these final hours, I will lay down my heart and I'll feel the power. But you won't. Because I can't make you love me if you don't. I asked for a little bit of rope. <laughs> I'm going to try to bring this around now. You know, it's funny because <clears throat> I thought about playing this song and I realized, you know, there are allusions to sexuality here. There, you know, are these people married or are they single? What's going on here, you know, in the, in the bedroom? What are they talking about? And here we are on a Sunday morning in church. Is this appropriate? Is this, is this wildly inappropriate to play? You know, it's interesting how difficult it is for us to shake our puritanical roots. And I mean that literally. The Puritans, the ones who landed at Plymouth Rock, set the moral tone, you know, the religious tone for this country for the last 300 years plus. And so in the Puritanical thought, in their way of living life, it was ascetic. It was a separation of the things that were physical from the things that were spiritual. And the things that were physical were seen as less than, lower than. Sexuality was seen at the bottom of the rung. It was something that had to be done for procreation, but it was not something that was seen as spiritual. And so we are heirs to all of that. <clears throat> and we have this huge distinction between how we're supposed to love spiritually and how we're supposed to love physically and how all of that stuff works. And yet nothing could be further from the Hebrew way of thinking. And when I first dove into Hebrew thought and study, starting about 20 years ago, and trying to understand what the scriptures are really telling us and who Jesus really was, I found this whole different world there. Because the Hebrews, far from trying to separate these things, saw them as all the same thing. They saw that their expression of love 
for God could not be separated from the physical love that they experience and express every single day. And in fact, instead of pulling out of life in order to be more spiritual, they thought that you had to dig into life. Zachayim, right? To life. You had to feel and express more deeply the physicality of your expression and your experience as a human being in order to be closer to God. And so all these things started to turn around in my mind. And then I read that knowing God, which is so stressed in the Bible, Ezekiel uses the term over 70 times, to know God. That word in Hebrew, to know, was yada, which means hand, which means that to a Hebrew mind, to know something is to be able to handle it, to have this this intimate familiarity the way a carpenter has with his tools or a musician has with his instrument or the lover has with the curves of the beloved's face, that you can feel the shape and the weight of these things in your hands, that is to know something. And to know God that way is intimate. And to take it a step further, to know is a euphemism for sexual intercourse. And so when Adam knew Eve and she bore him a son, that was really knowing his wife. And I got so excited about this. I remember when I was associate pastor at another church, I had to, when I got a chance to preach, (laughs) stand up and say this, you know, that to know God is to take him into your tent and know him. And my poor wife is crawling under the seat as I'm saying this. Because it was a pretty conservative evangelical church. And who is this guy and what is he doing to our service? I go a little too far at times. Yeah, but the point remains. This is what knowing God is. It's intimacy. Of course it's not sexual, but it's intimate. We took this trip up to Northern California because we needed to have a meeting with the um, founder of Children of the Americas, which is another nonprofit that I head up. And he, he has a, a deal going now where we might be able to get some funding, blah, blah, blah. But the interesting thing is he's in his 70s now. He's 76. He's retired, and he's spending half of his time down in Buenos Aires. He got connected down there because he went on an Antarctica trip and fell in love with the people and the language and the culture, and now he's fallen in love with a Buenos Aires Argentine woman. So that's another draw and another story. But in the, in the course of spending so much time in Buenos Aires, he started to learn the tango, the dance. Of course, he calls it tango. He was always doing this with us as we were talking to him, you know, the tango. But he's so in love with this dance because he said it has taught him a whole new way of approaching life and living life. And he said in tango, he called it tango, in tango you lead with your chest. And so there are two types of, of embraces, they call them, abrazos in, in Spanish. One is the open embrace where um, the leader has his hand around the waist of the follower and, and is grasping the, the right hand with the left hand and so on and so forth. And so leading is difficult because you lead with your chest. And really what tango is all about is the close embrace where the, the partner is pulled in and the chest are actually touching. And so there is no opportunity for I contact. There's no opportunity for any other type of of communication between the dancers except the chest itself. And the whole body becomes one as these two move, you know, through and and in in between and through the music. And so the two literally become one. And he said there are these salons in uh, in Buenos Aires where people come and, and they have it set up 
so that the couples are sitting at the far end of a, of a long room and the single men and the single woman are opposite and they do this, this, uh, uh, cabezado or something, I think, but he's cabeza with the head where you do a, a, a nod and if the woman accepts then you can get on the floor and dance together, you know. It's this kind of thing so you avoid the man having to walk on that long, lonely walk across the dance floor and get rejected and walk all the way back again. So you just kind of do this head thing, you know. And if she uh, looks at you and smiles and you get up and you dance together and you do three sets of three three-minute dances and then you sit down again. And he said that there was this, this uh, little Danish woman in a group of Danes who was not getting asked to dance. And so he did his nod. Now you remember, this is a 76-year-old man. Does his nod to her and she accepts and they dance. And at the end of the first dance, she just went, ah, you know. And at the end of the second dance, ah, it was a connection not sexual, but intimate, leading with the chest, moving together as one for just three minutes. We lonely human beings have a sense of connection, a sense of movement with each other in and through this beautiful music that transports us to another place. I think life is supposed to be more like the tango, even though I've never done it and can't do it. And after this, I'm going to have to learn with my wife or I'm dead meat. Yeah. <laughs> And he was encouraging us to, by the way. But it's like that. Not sexual, but intimate, connected, chest to chest, heart to heart. Every move is telegraphed throughout your entire body. And you feel it. And you know where it is that you're supposed to go. Our relationship with God should be more like the tango. And throughout the Bible, this analogy, this metaphor is there. God constantly sees himself and presents himself as bridegroom and his people, the nation of Israel or the church as the bride. And that is played out. That type of relationship, that type of intimacy, that type of knowing is the bedrock of the relationship with God that the scripture actually conveys. And because we have come from puritanical roots, it's hard for us to see just how earthy this language is, just how real this relationship is portrayed to be. But there are books in the Bible that are full of that type of imagery. And I want to share just one passage of one such book, the Song of Songs. The church hasn't known what to do with this book because it is so sensual, so sexual, actually. Because it's probably the poem of either Solomon himself or someone writing in Solomon's name about that time, a time of peace and prosperity in Israel, which was few and far between, but certainly occurred during the reign of Solomon, when he was taking another wife, and probably, as it says, from Lebanon, Lebanon, that area of, of the northern east coast of the Mediterranean, which is now present-day Lebanon. And she would have been a wife who was outside of the Jewish faith, he probably had about 60 already at that time. But he's taking this wife and he is so enamored of her. And she is dark-skinned. And, and in one of the lines, it's interesting because she's telling the other uh, women of Jerusalem, the daughters of Jerusalem in the harem, in the harem, saying, you know, you know, don't just stare at me because I'm black. Don't just stare at me because I'm dark. He said, because the sun has looked on me. Another way of saying the sun has darkened me, the sun has burned me, because she was a peasant girl. She was not a courtian. A courtesan, she was someone who was worked in the fields and in the vineyards. And yet Solomon is taken with her. But on another level, 
This is a metaphor for God speaking to his people, to the nation of Israel, and how he feels about them. And listen what is said here. At 4, Song of Songs 4, 8, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Journey down from the summit of Amanah, from the summit of Shenir and Hermon. You have made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You have made my heart beat faster with a single glance of your eyes, with a single strand of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than all kinds of spices. Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. And this is one of the tamer passages. I figured I'd already used up my capital with the song, so I'm going to go here. Because he talks about every part of her body with this kind of glowing references and all of these similes. Solomon is welcoming his new life. God is exulting in his bride, in his people. And there's a shifting point of view from the king to the bride and to a chorus of these these, uh, daughters of Jerusalem. This is from the king's point of view. And he is talking about his people. This is how God sees us. He sees us as his rapturous bride in whom he cannot take his eyes away. Can't wait to see her. Can't wait to hold her. Can't wait to be with her. This is how God is loving us. This is how God sees us. And how do we see ourselves? It is so hard for us to imagine that the God who created the universe can see each one of us in this way. Each one of us as having that kind of beauty that kind of precious passion for our God. But this is what he's trying to get across to us. This is how I love you. This is who you are to me. In the book of Hosea, there's another extended metaphor. The entire book of Hosea is God instructing Hosea to take on a bride that is going to be the metaphor for his relationship with this nation of Israel at a very different time. Hosea is told to take a prostitute as a bride, one who is unworthy, and he takes Gomer. And with that bride, the Lord says to Hosea, have children. And he has three of them with Gomer. And each one has a name that is signifying the changing relationship between God and his people. Because at this time, especially in the northern kingdom, in Ephraim, which is where Hosea was primarily working and prophesying, the people had fallen away. They were following the local gods, the deities, mostly called the Baals, the Baals, as we would normally say, the gods of Assyria, the gods of Canaan. And they were no longer following the Lord. They had broken away. They had become like prostitutes, like harlots in God's eyes. And yet, he says, marry one. And he has, she first bears him a son. And the son's name is Jezreel, as it would look. Yitzrael would be the the, uh, pronunciation in, in Hebrew. Which literally means that God sows. And what God was saying through this first passage is that justice is coming. You can't live this way without some sort of consequence. 
And God is sowing that consequence. It is coming. It came in the form just a few years later of the Assyrians marching through and taking the northern kingdom into captivity. Then there is a second child, a daughter, and her name is Lo-Ruchamah. And Lo-Ruchamah means literally not pitied, not loved, uncompassionate. And he's saying there will be no mercy at this time of the consequence that is coming. The third child is Lo-Ami, another daughter. I'm sorry, the third one was a son, I believe. Literally means not mine. And in this second chapter of Hosea, there is an implied divorce that happens, a separation between Hosea and his wife Gomer. But immediately in the third chapter, God tells Hosea again, go back, find her, take her back, pay for her, and bring her back into your home. So at this time when she has left him, she's either sold herself into slavery to be able simply to live, or she is with a new lover who sees enough of ownership of her that he requires payment from Hosea in order to take her back. And he does. He pays for her. And he takes her back. And so even with everything that has happened, even with the turning away of the people, even with the consequences that must be faced, God still comes back and at a cost to himself pulls the people back to himself, pulls the nation of Israel back to himself. Again, this is the kind of relationship that God has with us, seeing us as his wife, as his bride, unfaithful, yet pulling back. And then in chapter 11, the metaphor switches. God's point of view switches from that of husband to that of father or mother or parent. And listen what he says here. Hosea 11, 1 to 8. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, you've got a problem with pronouns here, the they here refers to the prophets. The more the prophets called the people back to the Lord, the more they went from them, the prophets. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and the burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. And think about that image. God with this infant child, with this nation, this fledgling nation, putting the feet and holding and giving the support, that intimate connection that is implied there, the loving care and nurturing. It is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love. And what does that mean? See, when you have an oxen that is wayward and going all over the field, you strap it down and you tie cords to it and you lock it into place and make it go the way that it goes. But he's saying, I didn't do that. I didn't bind my people with cords of a beast. I bound them with cords of a man, with cords of love, which means they were free to go any way they wanted to go, but they were still connected by this love, by this connection with their God. But it was the cords of a human being, the cords of love. And I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. The agony of unrequited love 
is all throughout this passage, isn't it? The love that is not reciprocated, the love that is not returned. The husband who has to go buy his wife back out of slavery or from another lover. The child, the parent who is thinking about their child. It was I who taught them to walk. I who healed them and provided for them even though they didn't realize it was me. And yet, look what they do. Look where they're going. That agony of unrequited love is apparent here in this passage. Does God agonize the way we do? Does God hurt the way that we do? I'll just talk in between the... Oh, they got it. Good. No, maybe not. Silence your cell phones, please. (laughs) Are you serious? That is so embarrassing. I see it now. What's going on is the music is being played from my iPhone. And somebody just called me. Why would they call me right in the middle of the service? Come on. Okay. Physician, silence thyself. Okay, how's that? (laughs) Does God hurt the way we do? I don't know. You know, I don't know if he does or he doesn't. I don't know if... um, it's a speculation. You know, we can, we can look one way and say, yeah, maybe he does, and, and no, maybe he doesn't. But I'll tell you this, is that, you know, maybe there's more of us in God than we, we, we would ever admit or imagine. Or maybe there's more of God in us than we would ever believe. But either way, whether God feels as keenly the, the betrayals and the hurts of these types of relationships as we do, The fact remains that we here now living and trying to love our God will feel the relationship as we feel any other relationship. It's who we are. We're physical people. We will live our spirituality and we'll live our love relationship with God through that lens, through that physicality. And if we try to separate it out, if we try to create a different type of relationship with our God than we feel and live with each other, then we're missing the point that the Hebrews are trying to bring across to us. Yes, maybe they're anthropomorphizing our God, but they're doing it for a very specific purpose. We will live out our relationships with God, feeling what we feel with our human relationships. And we can imagine that God is feeling the same thing. And he tells us, that these are valid analogies. These are real metaphors that describe something real. Maybe not in the way that we understand them, but that connection with God is that real, that important to him, that essential, that passionate. Can God's love go unrequited? Absolutely. Over and over it does, doesn't it? Don't we always miss? And why? How can God's love, a perfect love, go unreconciled? Or I should say, go unreciprocated, unreturned. Because part of the definition of love itself is freedom, is choice. Love must be freely given and freely received in order to be love at all. Remember where we were saying that that, uh, God bound the people with cords of men and not of beasts? If he coerced them into loving back, if he made them 
return the love, follow him, then there would be a different definition to what this whole thing is about. Love is not love unless it is freely given and freely received. We are said to be created in God's image. That part of us that is created in God's image, I believe, is the part that has self-awareness, that has this free choice. Because it's in that awareness and free choice that we can choose to receive the love, to give the love that God freely gives to us. That's what makes us like him in that respect. It's the choice. Without it, we're just automatons. Without it, we're just beasts of the field that do what we do because there's a a hook in our jaw. But God has created us for something else. If you want to think of it this way, God risked unrequited love in order to create a people who could love. He risked not having us simply so he could really have us. Does that make sense? And what does it mean for God to risk? Well, there's another whole theological can of worms. I don't know. I know what it meant to Jesus as a man fully involved and identified with us as people. I don't know what it means to the Father, and it doesn't matter. I will know that maybe sometime, maybe not. What I do know is this is the way, the space that God has given for me and for each one of us to live out this love relationship. The woman in the song said, Here in the dark in these final hours, I lay down my heart and I'll feel the power. That's what God has done. He's laid down his heart. He knows the power of this connection, this oneness. But we don't. And he's waiting for that moment when we start to get the first glimmer of what it means to have that. There's one more passage I want to read you. It comes from Matthew 15. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And I just think it's interesting that this woman came from the exact same place that Solomon's wife came from in the Song of Songs, from Tyre and Sidon, from Lebanon, Tyre and Sidon had been Greek cities for almost 300 years by the time of Jesus, since the time of Alexander the Great. And so they were fully westernized cities at this time, Greek-speaking. So she was a foreigner. She was an outsider. And she comes to him and says, My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Does that sound like Jesus to you? But she said, Great rejoinder here. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs, and here the diminutive is used. It could be little dogs or even puppies. Here the little dogs, the puppies, feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. This is a fascinating passage to me and always one that was difficult because it shows Jesus to be kind of a jerk. I mean, what's he doing here? This woman comes to him for help 
And he starts throwing these slurs at her. Yes, she was outside Judaism. She was a Gentile. She was a Greek. And they were referred to as dogs commonly. That's why you don't give what is holy to dogs. You don't cast your pearls before swine. They were called swine. They were called dogs, unclean animals, those who stood outside the law. It was known. But what is he doing here? I've heard some commenters say, well, he was testing her faith. He wanted to make sure that she was worthy to receive the gift that he was given. Okay, that may be. Another one said, well, he said it with a twinkle in his eye. You know, with a tone of voice that let her know this is not all as serious and you need to play along with me a little here. Okay, that may be so as well. But these kind of speculations, I don't think, get us closer to the purpose of a passage like this. Why is this here? And usually it's because we've missed the wider context. When we place this into its wider context, it becomes clear why it's here. There is nothing that Jesus says in the New Testament which is so short that doesn't have a purpose. At the beginning of this chapter 15, Jesus is in another one of his fights with the Pharisees and the scribes. And they come to him and they accuse his followers of not washing their hands before they eat bread, which was a violation of one of their oral traditions. And they say to him, why do your followers not respect the traditions of the elders? And he turns to them and say, why do you not respect the commandments of God in favor of your traditions? And he uses specific instances to show them where they are going wrong. And the final line that he gives them is that it's not what goes into a man or a woman that defiles them. It's what comes out. And his followers don't understand because they are so imbued in this culture too. They don't get it. And they come to him privately and say, what's going on? He says, you don't get it either. Okay, let me explain it to you. You know, what comes from the outside in means nothing. But what comes from the inside out is connected to the heart, connected to the very core, the center of a person. And right after that, you get this story. Do you see how it connects? This is a woman who stood outside the law. This is a woman who stood outside their tradition. She was as much of a dog and a swine as you could get. And his followers were not making the connection between what Jesus was saying. His exchange, his dialogue with her, was for their benefit, for their instruction. This Syrophoenician woman, this Greek woman, was the case in point of why these kind of academic arguments are important in the first place. Not just because you're trying to argue a point of theology, but because they have real-world consequences. This woman was coming to to him for help. No self-respecting Jew would have even talked to her, let alone had anything to do with her. He knew full well what he was going to do, but he needed them to see that it's not what comes from the inside out, it's what comes from the outside in. And she rightly understands that even the little dogs under the master's table can at least eat the crumbs. But this is the problem at the same time. Because so many of us see us exactly as that. We see ourselves as the idiot child who has to sit back in the locked cabinet in the back of the room under the cupboard or at the back of the house. We see ourselves as the family pets underneath the table trying to glean some crumbs. I hear people talking all the time, I pray to God for help. I pray to God for um, just a, a way to get myself through. I pray to God for this. I pray to God for that praying for these crumbs to come through when the reality is we got a place at the table. When the reality is we are sons and daughters of the living God with 
everything that that means, the full inheritance of what that means. We can sit at the table with this feast around us. We are sitting at the table, whether we realize it or not. And whether we realize it or not, in the midst of plenty, we starve to death, asking for these crumbs when all we have to do is partake in the meal that is already spread out before us. This is the reality of our lives. This is the reality of who we are. When the elder brother of the prodigal is berating his father because he is throwing a party for his brother who did all these evil things and came back. What does the father turn to him and say? Son, you don't understand. Everything I have is already yours. How much more than everything can you get? And if you diminish your brother's share, how does that change the everything that you already have? What part of everything don't you understand? We have everything from the beginning of time from the beginning of the creation of the world, everything the Father has is already ours. We don't have to pray for it to come to us. We don't have to go out and look for it. We just have to realize that it is already here and who we are are a people who can partake of everything that God has. We are not the little dogs under the table. Everything I have is yours. You know, what God is really saying to us, in essence then, he said, I can't make you love me if you won't. Well, maybe in God's case, I can make you love me if I want to, but I won't make you. Because if I do, then you are no longer who you are. And love is no longer what love is if I change that relationship. So I won't make you love me if you won't. But what I will do is I'll keep singing to you and I'll keep dancing the tango by myself if I have to and I'll keep drawing you and I'll keep loving you and I'll keep hoping and I'll keep waiting until the stars burn out because I will never, ever give up on our relationship together. This is who we are. If you can understand that, if you can realize that I am always seeing you as my beautiful bride, as my beautiful son or daughter that I help to walk and I carry with pride, then you will start to understand the nature of this love, the nature of this relationship. Please come. Please come. Let's pray. Father, it seems so easy, but it's so difficult. You know how difficult it is for us to break through everything that we think about ourselves, our inadequacies, our failings, everything that we've experienced that has taught us that we are not worthy, that we don't have a place at the table. Help us to realize every day more and more that that is not reality, that is not the nature of you, of your love, of your creation, that we are exactly who you say we are, your bride, your sons, your daughters. Help us to come into that 
Help us to realize in such a life-changing way that it reanimates us, changes all of our choices, invigorates our relationships. That's what we want, Lord. We want to know who you are so we can remember who we are. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. There are no words. Thank you for guiding us and drawing us and dancing with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So stand.